Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. In Islington, South Carolina, along the Blackwater River swamps of Salkahatchee, surrounded by almost 2,000 acres of green fields and wooded plantations, lies Mazelle Farm, a hunting estate owned by the prominent Murdoff family. But on the night of June 7, 2021, the Moselle estate would soon be stained with blood, infamy, and mystery. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. within South Carolina, the Murdoch family was known for its long-established legal dynasty, originating almost a century ago within the state's Low Country region. Alec Murdoch, patriarch of the family, upheld the Murdoch legal lineage as a lawyer with a private injury firm founded by Alex's great-grandfather in 1910. Yet with their great wealth and influence came a great deal of mysterious circumstances. The Murdoch family was no stranger to legal drama, Death first struck the Murdaughs in 2018, when the family's housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, died at the Moselle estate after allegedly tripping and falling down the stairs. Satterfield's family claims that Alec Murdaugh offered legal help for Gloria's death, yet they never saw a penny of settlement money. In February 2019, Alec Murdaugh's 19-year-old son, Paul, allegedly drunkenly crashed his father's boat into Archer's Creek Bridge killing 19-year-old Mallory Beach. Her body was recovered eight days later. Paul was later arrested and charged with three felony counts, including boating under the influence resulting in death. Released on a $50,000 bond, Paul pleaded not guilty and was awaiting trial. Just over two years later, the case would take another deadly turn. On the night of June 7, 2021, 22-year-old Paul and his 52-year-old mother Maggie were found shot and killed at Moselle Farm. On July 14, 2022, 53-year-old Alec Murdaugh was arrested and charged with the murders of his wife and son. On January 23, 2023, the double murder trial of Alec Murdaugh began. Fox News Atlanta-based correspondent Jonathan Sari has been following the case since it went to trial and joins us to share the latest. This is a bizarre case. It started out where there were reports out of South Carolina that this prominent family 
was under attack. And then details started coming out and it became much stranger than anyone could have imagined. The the Murdoch family had been prominent in Colleton County in South Carolina's low country for generations. We're talking about generations of prosecutors, generations of attorneys. And Alec Murdoch was just one of the latest in, in this very prominent family. In 2021, June 7th, Um, His wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, were fatally shot on the family's 1,700-acre hunting estate. Um, Initially, it it was assumed that the family was under attack, or so their friends suspected. And then it started coming out that uh, Alec Murdoch had been having financial problems. Friends had confronted him. He said that he had a a, a drug problem and he was under an umbrella of suspicion and eventually was accused of the murders of his wife and son. Now, in this trial, he has admitted tearfully that he betrayed some of his most vulnerable clients. For example, the family of Gloria Satterfield, his longtime maid who died after a trip and fall accident on his front steps. He took the family, her children, under his wing and said he would help them through the claims process. They would sue him. The insurance would pay. Well, they were never paid. And it turned out that he admittedly was pocketing the money. This was just one example. He also admitted that he took money from fellow attorneys, uh, including some of his closest friends. But one thing he is insistent on throughout this trial is that he had nothing to do with the murders of his wife and son. But what makes things more complicated is that he now admits he lied to investigators at the crime scene about his whereabouts. Initially, he said that he was at the house resting, taking a nap, and then left for his mother's house for a brief visit while his wife and son went down to the family kennels on their hunting estate, said he had not gone down there that evening, and then Evidence surfaced in a video taken just minutes before their murders, a video uploaded to to Snapchat uh, by his son that placed his voice with his wife's voice and his son's voice at the family kennels. Again, just minutes before they were killed. So he fessed up that he had lied to authorities about that and that he was there, but still insisted he had left them before they were killed. When asked why he would lie to authorities, he blamed it on the drugs. He said that the drugs made him paranoid. He, he didn't trust police and he made the one lie and then the lie stuck and, he, and, and that became his story until proven otherwise. So a very complicated case. He is a skilled attorney. He took the witness stand late last week. He uh, underwent a grilling, not only by his own friendly attorneys, but also also by the prosecution uh, trying to poke holes in his testimony, but he wouldn't bite. Even though he admitted lying to authorities about where he was during the minutes leading up to the murders, when prosecutors tried to identify an aha moment in in his interrogation video where he told authorities that he was at the house while his wife and son were down at the family kennels, when they asked him if that was when 
he was lying. He said, I don't believe it was because I was at the house while my wife and son were down at the kennels. And so he wouldn't take the bait and give the prosecution an aha moment. And clearly the defense is hoping that they'll sow enough doubt in this jury that they will not be able to find him guilty of murder, even though he remains under this umbrella of suspicion. We are now in what may be the final week of this trial. The judge has granted the defense's request to take the jury on on a field trip to Moselle. Moselle is that 1,700-acre hunting property uh, so that they can see the the crime scene. The, The prosecution was concerned about this because they said that there's more dense tree growth between the family kennels and the home, suggesting maybe there's more of a sound buffer now than there was at the time. Uh, the judge assured the defense that there would be intense security accompanying the jury because the defense had raised the issue that recently there have been a lot of trespassers on the property, a lot of people taking selfies in front of the crime scene, Emily. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Digging deeper into the motive, you mentioned how complicated this case was. And prosecution in part is arguing that there was a financial motive to be gained from Alex murdering his wife and one of his sons because of financial difficulties that had had ensued from not only the death of the housekeeper that you mentioned, but also a wrongful death lawsuit stemming from a drunken boat driving accident that his son had been involved in where his then schoolmate was killed. Tell us more about that. Yeah, in 2019, Paul was allegedly operating a boat, accused of being drunk at the time. The boat was involved in an accident. It killed a 19-year-old passenger named Mallory Beach and injured several other passengers on board that boat. Well, as a result, the Murdoch family, not just Paul, but other members of the family were sued. The allegations being that the older brother, Buster, provided his identification so that Paul could purchase alcohol because at the time he was underage. Uh, the allegations being that this was Murdaugh's boat that, that he provided. And so the whole family was really brought into these lawsuits. And and these lawsuits were, were seeking in, in the neighborhood of millions of dollars, not just money from their insurance, but personal finances. And so the prosecution was pointing out that as a result of at least one of these lawsuits, the attorney was seeking a motion to compel Alec Murdoch to turn over his finances because he claimed that he was broke at the time. The attorney suing him said, 
that can't be right. This guy's a successful attorney. He's winning all of these these settlements or, or winning all these cases or getting people uh, to settle for huge sums of money. Um, he, he can't be broke. And so he had filed for a motion to compel these financial documents from, from Alec Murdon. So the prosecution is arguing that faced with these financial hardships and also uh, earlier in the day of the, the murders, he was confronted by, uh, by, by someone at his law practice asking him about missing funds. And their conversation was interrupted because Alec Murdaugh received a call that his father in the hospital had taken a turn for the worse. And so after that, the financial conversation ended, it turned to, to sympathy, and then you have the murders of his wife and son. And so the prosecution is saying that he, he committed the murders, Alec Murdaugh, they say, committed the murders to create a distraction from the investigation into his financial crimes. And they tried to point out a pattern because several months later in September, um, a close friend of Alec Murdoch confronted him about a large sum of money, I think it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that had, had gone missing, that Alec Murdaugh owed him. And uh, and this witness said that that uh, Murdaugh confessed that um, he had a, a severe drug problem. And, uh, and then a few hours later, this attorney receives a phone call that Alec Murdaugh has been shot. Well, it, it turned out that uh, Murdaugh had admittedly hired someone to kill him. He said that he wanted to commit suicide, but for a while he he claimed that it was just a random attack by this well-dressed stranger. And so the prosecution trying to point out that whenever this man, whenever this defendant is confronted with something, bad things happen. And so they they believe that the motive is that he's trying to create a distraction from, from financial crimes. Now the defense is trying to poke holes in this theory. Um, they say that in the case of the first attack, the death of his wife and son, how would that improve his financial situation? Also, witness after witness, even hostile witnesses to Murdoch, said that by all outside appearances, he loved his wife and son. And so the defense pointing to that saying, why would he go so far as to kill his own family? Yes, he's admitted to all of these financial crimes, but that doesn't mean that he's a murderer. And then in the case of the the other shooting where Murdaugh himself was shot in this alleged hire, suicide by hire uh, plot that, that failed, um, they were pointing out that Alec Murdaugh truly wanted to die, that it wasn't his in, intention to survive. And yes, he lied about it initially, but al- ultimately he he fessed up. And it'll be very interesting to see which story the jury believes. And you mentioned anywhere the Murdaugh's are, bad things happen. Frankly, they've been linked to a series of mysterious deaths. We've been touching on them here as well included the death of Stephen Smith, 19 years old, who was found dead in the middle of a country road, 15 miles from the Murdaugh's family's hunting lodge in July of 2015. His last call was, oh, there's boys in a car. He had a significant link to Murdaugh's son, Buster. What do you make of that story and how does that tie in here? Initially, the Stephen Smith case was ruled a hit and run, but then after 
all of these charges against Alec Murdoch. Uh, SLED, the state law enforcement division in South Carolina, reopened its investigation. That whole case, a lot of people have been very suspicious about Stephen Smith's death, including his family, and they are hoping that as a result of this Murdaugh trial, uh, that it will lead to more answers. They don't believe that this was an accidental death. Jonathan, tell us about the explosive moments we've been having in the trial, both in testimony and in surrounding circumstances. Well, let's start with the testimony. Um, Murdaugh w- got very emotional anytime he would talk about the deaths of his family. And in fact, even when he's just sitting in the courtroom, anytime they show pictures, either from the autopsies or the crime scene, he, he's clearly disturbed. He, he's weeping. He's, he's burying his head. Uh, it, it's the one time that you see him very agitated. The rest of the time, he seems very much in control. In fact, you could mistake him as an attorney. He's obviously a skilled attorney and he's constantly conferring with his lawyers. But whenever anything comes up regarding the deaths of Maggie and Paul, he gets very emotional. Um, Also, there were some things only indirectly related to the the trial that nonetheless had a direct impact. One was a a bomb threat early on. The judge very coolly and calmly um, dismissed everyone, said that they were told to evacuate the building. And then we later learned that uh, someone had called in a a bomb threat to local authorities. Uh, Everyone left the courthouse. Police went in with dogs. They weren't able to find anything. They gave the all clear and everyone returned. And it was uh, relatively uneventful. And then you have these uh, these jurors coming down with with COVID. And fortunately, they had uh, enough alternates to replace them. But there was this scare. Uh, Is the disease, is the infection going to stop with these initial two jurors who became infected? Or would this spread to the entire jury? After that, the judge um, advised people to to wear masks, but said that it was optional. And, And if you look at the courtroom, most people are not wearing masks. Some are. But thankfully, it looks like we're going to get to the end of this trial with no additional jurors getting sick. Thank goodness. And even there were allegations that Buster Murdaugh had flipped the bird at a key witness uh, during this trial. Now, that sort of remains open to interpretation that dovetails in with the sensationalism of this trial. The fact that it's being televised, the fact that the defendant took the stand in his own defense, the fact that he is an attorney, the fact that he does get so emotional. There's a photograph captured of a, a long string of mucus from his nose as he's absolutely distraught, sobbing. It really has been riveting, gripping television and radio for Americans across the country. And these explosive moments, as you've been describing them, just play into that and play up the appointment viewing that this trial has become for Americans, Jonathan. Oh, yeah. I I mean, you could not write this as a screenplay. You could not write this as fiction and have the audience believe that it would be possible because it's so over the top. And yet we are watching reality. This is true crime. And so people are are gripped by this case just because it's so incredibly bizarre. And also because this is a very compelling family. This was until recently a very powerful family, one of the most powerful families in South Carolina's low country here. 
and then you have the defendant just reduced to tears and and wiping his nose. You have you have you have reports that Buster Murdaugh, the surviving child, uh, was perhaps making an obscene gesture. You know, for a long time he had his middle finger extended while the attorney that had sued the Murdaugh family for millions of dollars in connection with the boat wreck was testifying. You could tell that there was tension in the room. You could tell that Murdaugh was not pleased with this guy. But whether this was an obscene gesture or just Buster um, biting his fingernail, which he later did after leaving his extended middle finger up for a while, it's up for interpretation. I show, it, it was captured on video, and I showed this to multiple people, and people had different reactions. Some people saying, oh yeah, this is definitely an obscene gesture, and others say, no, he was just biting his fingernail and used the unfortunate middle finger. And it's so interesting against the landscape, as you articulated, that this family for generations has had an incredible amount of power and influence there in that low country. And for a lot of urban viewers watching this or similarly rural viewers, they understand or are fascinated by that small town climate where a last name means a great deal, where grandfathers and great grandfathers portraits hang in the courthouse a lot of people incarcerated there in that area were put there by the Murdaughs. So this level of accountability or lack thereof as it plays out with all of these twists and turns, you know, that obscene gesture quality, that's just one question of, well, maybe it's part of the hubris that this family was allowed to cultivate given their riches and given how much that they have allegedly gotten away with for, frankly, decades. In the beginning, that was part of the arguments that not one person who lived in that area was not touched in some way or another by that family. And that is a question that might hang over the jury during this trial, Jonathan. Oh, that was a huge question during jury selection. The attorneys on both sides knew that there was no way that they were going to get a, a panel of, of jurors that had never heard of the Murdoch family. And ultimately, they didn't want jurors who were living under a rock. They wanted jurors who could decide this case in partially um, despite the evidence or, or despite the history uh, that they were aware of of the Murdoch family. The uh, Murdaugh's grandfather, um, Randolph Buster Murdaugh Jr., um, was the 14th Circuit solicitor, uh, which a solicitor is what in South Carolina, the term they use for district attorney. His portrait was hanging in the very courtroom that his grandson is now facing trial. They removed that portrait before this trial began just so it wouldn't have an undue influence on this jury. But that just shows how powerful this family's legacy is in this part of South Carolina. That's absolutely right, Jonathan. How fascinating this case is. Thank you so much for your insight, your thoughtful analysis, your eagle-eyed reporting. This is such a compelling case, and we will stay with you throughout all developments and look forward to the next big developments in the case. The conversation will continue with former South Carolina 7th Circuit solicitor Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy is a former South Carolina 7th Circuit solicitor former assistant U.S. attorney and former congressman from South Carolina. Trey, there are so many moving parts to this case, so many alleged crimes that have surrounded this family that have been linked, frankly, to a significant chain 
of mysterious deaths and serious allegations. And it's all culminating right now in this one sensational trial. How would you have prosecuted this case? Oh gosh, Emily, I, I would have I would have done opening a little bit differently. Uh, opening to me is about establishing credibility, reliability, trustworthiness with the jury. Um, I probably would have. I mean, going chronologically with both your opening and your and, and your uh, direct your case in chief is fine. It's a conservative, n- natural way to do it. I would have probably started with Paul and Maggie's day. Um, I wouldn't have started at the murder scene. I would have said, okay, I mean, because you think about it, Emily, what scares people the most? I mean, you and I are sitting here talking today, and it's it has not entered either one of our minds that today will be the last day of our lives. It just has not entered our minds. We we haven't even thought about that. So if you want to move the jury, I would have them wake up like Maggie and Paul Murdoch, having no idea that this was going to be the last day of their lives. And what series of decisions or what led them to be where they were when the final shot, when the fatal shots were fired. So look, trials are won months and months before you ever like open your mouth in court. Um, These prosecutors are, um, and I know some of them very, very well. I know Don Zelenka very, very well. He's been at the table. Um, he's a brilliant appellate lawyer. And I would tell him if he was on the podcast with us, he's a brilliant appellate lawyer. It's a different skill set to connect with a jury. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how much jury trial experience the prosecutors have. Harpootlian mm-hmm. and Jim Griffin have a ton. I don't know about the prosecutors. So, it's it's really, can you put the jury where you want the jury to be? And I would have wanted them to wake up the last day of Maggie and Paul Murdoch's lives, having no idea this was going to be the last day of their lives. Verdicts have hinged on juror fatigue. They have hinged on jurors not understanding confusion, being inundated with data. They have hinged on the fact that prosecution has lost the storytelling nature, to your point. It's crucial that they connect with the jury. That's all the jury has because at the end of the day, it's just like you and I talking. My takeaways are my takeaways. And the stronger the connection, the more persuasive you are. In this criticism of how the prosecution has strategized, though, their approach, what might be the reasons why they've taken this direction? What positives, if any, do you see about the route that they've taken? Well, I mean, I I think, I mean, if you want a lesson in futility and frustration, then call a jury after a verdict and ask them what they base their verdict on. Mm. You will pull your hair out because it's not what we as lawyers would have thought was most important. I mean, it's so bad, Emily. I mean, when you're starting off, you want the jury to kind of tell you what you did right, what you need to work on. And then you do that four or five times and you say, I need to go see a psychiatrist because this makes no sense at all. And you stop asking the jury. So here's what you have going for you if you're a prosecutor. You have two bodies. There's no question they're dead. Sometimes you don't have a body. So it wasn't self-defense. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't suicide. So I know it sounds simplistic, but to the jury, we have a murder. The question is now, who did it? 
I mean, we get all caught up in the why, but it's really who did it. The why is superfluous. You don't ever have to prove it. I mean, they want to know. You better give them some explanation, but who? So you begin to eliminate who who had access to them, who had um, familiarity with the scene, and you begin to narrow it down, and then you have this gift, this gift which I would rather have, Emily, than a confession, a false exculpatory statement. Mm-hmm. You have someone lying about being present, and I read all these articles about, you know, what a brilliant strategic move to admit that he was lying. Well, what choice did he have? I mean, the jury knew he was lying. So then you have selective paranoia brought about by drug abuse. And it is selective because he remembers lots of things. And he was truthful about lots of things. It's just the most important thing, which is where were you when your wife and son had their heads blown off that he struggles with it? I mean, I... I watched some of the testimony. The level of detail about which bird dog was chasing which chicken. You can remember that. And you're struggling to recall whether or not you fell asleep at about the time you claim some opioid drug sellers blew your wife and son's head off. I just, juries do not think like lawyers, which is why no one would ever seat me and you want a jury. <laughs> you, but they wouldn't see me. They think <laughs> we have two bodies. Someone did it. It's not suicide. It's not accident. It's not self-defense. Who did it? And then I'm sure they're in there thinking, okay, even if the prosecution did not, did not fully carry the burden beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do we really think, is this like OJ where we're going to go find the real killer. I mean, do they really think the real killer is quote out there somewhere? I don't, I don't think they do. Well, and that's why that, as you called it, the quote, simplistic approach, that's why it matters because you can't build that impenetrable storytelling without building it brick by brick because of the defense. If all they have to do is poke a hole enough, a wide enough hole that it removes that doubt or it inserts that doubt then all is lost. So you have to build it brick by brick and you have to say, this is what happened and take everyone through step by step by step, illuminating all the inconsistencies. Now you talked about how some say, oh, it's amazing. It was brilliant strategy. I agree with you. He was caught between a rock and a hard place and he had to admit it. Now, part of the question is why he's even in the stand to begin with. Some people calling that brilliant. Some people call that Uh, an absolute hallmark of hubris. What say you? Uh, I call it having a lawyer for a client and you cannot control your client. Uh, I'll bet you Harpootlian and Griffin are telling him, don't do it. Uh, Mm -hmm. They probably think they're in a decent spot in terms of arguing doubt. So what Murdoch is thinking is, okay, I have a chance to walk. I mean, a hung jury just means I get retried again, maybe with, you know, a better prosecutorial strategy. I mean, retrials to me benefit the prosecutor. So you get a hung jury, you go through this again, and they've got a better chance of convicting me. So this is my shot to walk, to get an acquittal. It's also the hubris of thinking I'm good enough to explain anything away. And candidly, Emily, the prosecutor gave him way too much time to talk. 
way too much time on cross. He had no control over the narrative. I mean, I, who really am suspicious of everyone, I'm sitting there watching him thinking, yeah, he's doing a good job testifying. I mean, the prosecutor was like using him as an expert to explain certain things. And all the while, he's building a rapport with the jury. You've got to control cross-examination. And Creighton lost control. I'll give you an example. Whether or not the Murdoch family is prominent, first of all, how do you even define that? And secondly, what difference does that make? What difference does it make whether the Murdochs were prominent or not prominent as to whether or not Maggie and Paul had their heads blown off. And they, they waste all this time by splitting atoms over who gets to define what's prominent. I'll give you one other example, and then we'll be quiet because it's your podcast and not mine. But you can tell that I get animated about this. You saw the badge hanging from his pocket. They spent a lot of time talking about solicitor. I was a solicitor. I had a badge. I didn't put it in the console where the cops could see me when they stopped me for speeding, but I did have one. He had it on. Why would you not save that for closing argument? Mm. That's a pretty decent piece of evidence. The fact that you call him Paul during the sled interviews, but now all of a sudden he's Paul Paul. Why not use that in closing where no one has a chance to, to, re, to rebut it? There is no explanation. You leave that with the jury. He gave him a chance to explain both of them. So what if that's dovetails in when you talk about the prominence and whether it matters, you talk about, you know, his use of nicknames to sort of engender himself, ingratiate himself with the jury. What if that all goes into the lack of accountability that this family has had, has enjoyed for decades? And then that goes into the plausibility of him thinking he could get away with it, that while it not be at its heart, the motive, if the motive, let's say, was these the financial mess that he was in, coupled with his opioid addiction and the the massive lawsuits that he was facing, the lies over his financials for so long. But it's the fact that he thought he could get away with it. Because at the end of the day, for most people that aren't true sociopaths or psychopaths, the reason they don't do something is because of deterrence. Here, it seems he thinks he could get away with it for the sake of this conversation if he's the one. So maybe all of that gets wrapped up into why he could blow off the heads of his wife and his son, hire a hitman to kill him, engage in so much nefarious and consistent, complex lying through the years because he knew full well he could get away with it. Well, I think you're right. But if you and I were prosecuting this case together, I think I would say, look, Emily, you're the lead prosecutor and I'm second chairing you. However... Why don't we boil that down to something tangible, which is the ability to impact crime scenes? So we know he tried to impact the investigation and the crime scene surrounding the boat accident. We've heard references to his son and a girlfriend getting into a car wreck, and he was called to come remove the alcohol. I mean, this is stuff, no matter how prominent you are as a family. I mean, I would, I would use the word prominent as a synonym for entitled. Mm -hmm. So you're entitled. You think that you can get away with things the rest of us cannot get away with. So, of course, he's going to impact the crime scene. He was doing it when it was just going to save him money in a civil suit. So, of course, he's going to do it if it means saving his life. And then I think you begin to paint for the jury a difference between 
famous, prominent, and entitled. And I think that also includes the perceived shame, because I think with entitlement um, and with that level of entrenched history of prominence, there comes with it an absolute aversion to shame. And so a family like that, worse than financial, you know, dues is, is a mark on that name. Worse than that is, is, is being that family member that erases the good name of the three before you and the portraits in the courthouse and the, the reputation around town that you are the ink stain in that genealogy that has imprinted itself so deeply there in that county. And that shame might be just as big of a motive or, or, or to um, somehow avoid that. That's why he was the role of fixer. Well, I served with his father. His father was the solicitor when I was the solicitor. So I saw him twice a year. Um, I'm not sure um, that people didn't already know that that family um, got away with stuff that the rest of us mm. could not get away with. Uh, now, when you have the power, um, it doesn't really matter what other people think about you. I, I would, I, I would offer this potentially. Um, that that Murdoch is such a good liar, and you have to be a good liar. And 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 I don't like say that as a as a compliment or an insult. I mean, to be told that you're a good liar is probably not a compliment. But he is a good liar. But you have to be if you're an opioid addict and you're stealing money from your law partners. So. Good liars can convince themselves, particularly if you have sociopathic um, ideations, that it was not me that did it. Remember when he used the word intentionally? I would never intentionally. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. What I read in that and what I would argue to the jury, and again, you don't do it in cross because he's never going to agree with you. You do it when there is no rebuttal. Intentionally is a euphemism for the drugs did it. If the drugs made me forget where I was and lie to you, then why would those same drugs not be responsible if I did commit an act of violence? It wasn't me. And you convince yourself that that's not the real me. I would never have done that. I think the family um, probably rationalizes the way other people do, that it's okay for us to do this because we're serving a larger good. Mm. And that's a dangerous path to go down, but lots of people do. And I can't imagine what it's like to be part of a genealogy like that, where perhaps from the second you even knew who you were, that that was baked into your being, that there's always been that protection of the name, protection of self, the manipulation. Maybe it's not lying. Maybe it's just manipulation. It's whatever it is to get out unscathed and to protect what you have inherited in that moment, what you've never known anything different. And we see it too in, in inconsistencies and pivots in his testimony and in his, his defenses, even saying, oh, I, I, my number one thing, I distrust law enforcement. That's a pretty big statement coming from someone who represented the state, whose family represented the state, who's incarcerated hundreds, if not thousands of people currently in that state. What do you make of that, Trey? I was stunned that he said that. I almost thought that he would go back and try to clean it up, that he Mm -hmm. was distrustful of SLED. So if you and I are prosecuting the case, we draw a link between the fact that he distrusts law enforcement when he is on the hot seat. 
And yet he's got a badge with him at all time because he wants everyone else to, to respect what that represents, that that's somehow a pathway for him. I mean, there's no other reason to have the badge hanging from your hip pocket than you think that that is supposed to denote or connote something. I would have probably spent more time asking him which um, which cops in his in his own office, which investigators in his solicitor's office he doesn't trust. Mm. I'd make him it, name names. It also flies in the face of his own behavior that night. Um, and again, going back to I guess this this self notion of being a fixer and also just saving his own hide. Um, remember saying changing his story, how much he tried to move the body. Well, your your white shirt is pristine. Oh, then it changes to, I just put my fingers on my son's neck. There was a lot of, you would see at that time, trust of law enforcement, right? That's who exactly he immediately, oh, you, you boys know me, right? Everything's fine. So what a different story to then say, well, it was born out of distrust in that moment, right? That's a big inconsistency. But you put your finger on it. So why does he have to say that? Why does he have to say that? Because of how damning that interview was, where he lied about where he was at the most important point. So, okay, I'm going to blame the drugs, but for the 12 out of 12 people that don't believe in selective paranoia due to drug use, I'm going to have to come up with something else. I don't know the complexion of this jury. I don't know men versus women. I don't know the racial breakdown, but... He's trying to plant the seed because of what happened in Memphis and and other places that maybe you shouldn't trust law enforcement Mm. either. It's tough when you're in law enforcement carrying a badge, having parties for cops. But look, he's he. You say a rock and a hard place. I mean, it is rare to have that big of a lie on full display, and just like you kind of over talk on these innocuous points, the amount of time he spent on these meaningless, innocuous points, you also sometimes tend to overprove things. Mm-hmm. Look, the fact that you're paranoid doesn't mean you didn't do something wrong. You can both be paranoid and have done something wrong. I think it is that voice in him that he's convinced himself it was the drugs and not him. Okay, that's fine. But he knows legally that's no distinction. So he tries to kind of overprove or overexplain that seminal lie that I think is going to wind up doing him, doing him in. We're going to take a quick break. More of the Fox True Crime podcast shortly. And remember, for listeners, that the prosecution is not seeking the death penalty here. They're seeking life without parole. So he might be in his head thinking, well, this is going to be a way that will affect sentencing. Right. And we've seen that in the past as well, but usually in the context of capital punishment, where juries decline to go that final and fatal step because they say, all right, there was some there's some mental element that prevents us from fully hinging this on your complete, rational, acute mental state at that time. There's postpartum depression. There's drug use. There is something that makes us hesitate to say, yes, it was cold and calculated and you knew exactly what you were doing. But the charges here don't reflect there, it's not manslaughter. It's not some type of passionate or lack of control situation. The charges reflect that this was calculated, as we've been discussing, given this financial motive. So him leaning so heavily potentially on his drug use or drug abuse, um, 
if if there's a if there's a compassionate cell in that in that jury base, then that might that might affect sentencing. But to your point, I don't see it succeeding anywhere else. No, and I'll tell you what Cliff Newman's going to charge to the jury whenever it happens. Voluntary intoxication is no defense. So mm-hmm. the fact that you're a drug addict, only if someone involuntarily made you take the drugs, that, that is no defense to any crime. You are correct. In a capital case, it would be diminished mental capacity. It would be something else that would be a mitigating factor that would cause the jury to go with life. But Cliff, if he's convicted, Judge Newman, it's mandatory minimum 30 years in South Carolina, and 30 mm-hmm. means 30, day for day. And the maximum's life. So you have someone who's killed two family members. There's no chance in the world that Cliff Newman does not sentence him to life for both of them if he is convicted. Here's the other part of it. Of course, you can never, Emily, meet desperate people. They do all this rationalizing that you and I wouldn't do. Oh, we just don't think like that. Let's assume he walks out of the courtroom Thursday or Friday. Let's assume he's acquitted. He's walking right straight into federal custody where he's going to be tried for a series of serious financial crimes that based on the the, the amount of loss, the dollar amount, he's going to be in jail for a long time no matter what. So maybe it's he wants to go to jail but not having killed the two people— what parents kill their children? That's the first thing I told my daughter when this crime happened. I got to give her credit. She told me he did it. And I said, honey, parents do not kill their children. We just can't think about that. And yet it looks like he did. I would just qualify that statement that, you know, rational parents don't. Yes. Loving parents don't. Non-sociopath parents don't. Um, and I think, you know, when you're redlining, when you are, when you're, when you are in the thick of that combat, which he is, he's, he's in that thick assault type situation where every day is just about to your point, protecting his skin, fixing the situation. So it's one step at a time. He's probably not thinking that far ahead to the financial crimes anywhere, or if he does, it's just a remote possibility. Given what we've talked about, his lack of accountability, his hubris, the thought that he can get away with it, the thought that he's going to walk free. And then, you know what, I'm going to get out of those financial crimes too. My specific intent was eroded given my addiction. All the blame is placed on that. You know, he he's the kind of defendant that would sue the drug pusher. He's the kind of defendant that would say, you know what, I'm actually going to sue you and blame you for this. I think we haven't seen the last of the surprising or sort of not surprising elements here in this case. Um, let's focus just for a moment, X's and O's, on SLED. If you could explain for listeners what that is, how it's different in South Carolina versus other states. Yeah, well, we have 46 counties and each county has a sheriff and we have different police officers, but we have a statewide law enforcement division. It's called SLED. SLED is an abbreviation for the South Carolina Law Enforcement or State Law Enforcement Division. And SLED is called in uh, when there are uh, really, really messy crime scenes. Uh, They have really good forensic capabilities in terms of DNA and blood spatter and all the things that you would not expect every county to have. So, I'm in a county that has, it's a big county, so they have their own forensic units, but we still call in SLED from time to time. This one 
was a little interesting because Murdoch worked as a volunteer for the solicitor's office down there. Duffy Stone is the first non-Murdoch solicitor in this part of the state. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Duffy allowed Alex Murdoch to be a, a volunteer solicitor. You also, this was Collington County, right? Where this happened and not Hampton County. They're all small counties down there other than Buford. When you think Hilton Head, think Buford. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The rest of them are are small counties. So they probably don't have robust uh, crime scene analysts. So you're going to bring in the folks from Columbia. Um, probably ordinarily, even if it were not a high-profile defendant, you they probably still would have brought in SLED, just given the crime scene and what the cops found the night they got there. And tell us about how the crime scene was altered damaged, impacted, and what do you make of the competence level of what of what occurred that night? Yeah, I mean it's hard. I I I I, I want to like be respectful of the police. I mean obviously in hindsight you rope it off, nobody comes in. I mean mm-hmm. you, you you but is this a homicide scene? Is it a suicide homicide scene? You you you've got a lawyer that you know because he works for the DA's office, for the solicitor's office. And in a perfect world, you make everybody mad. You tape it off and say no one's coming in, nobody's doing anything. You put up tents so the rain doesn't impact it. That's a perfect world. The question then becomes and you know, Emily, I mean trials are <laughs> there trials are really two trials. It's what the cops did and then what some defense attorney thinks they should have done. Mm-hmm. And and that's what the cross is all about during, during all the cops. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do I think juries have a sense of the difference between hindsight being 2020 and what was really, really incompetent and malfeasance on the front end. I had a case one time where a woman was beaten with the buckle of a belt. Mm-hmm. It was a domestic violence case. She wasn't killed, but she was severely injured. The police officer did not even retrieve the belt. Okay? That is inexcusable. There is no excuse a prosecutor can stand in front of a jury and say, well, this is why he didn't get the assault weapon. There are things here where I think a jury would say, we wish you had done it, but it wasn't intentional. It wasn't wasn't sheer incompetence. It was just a wrong judgment call. Um. That's that's how I think a jury will take it. I, I didn't hear anything that kind of spoke to me as just utter incompetence. How could you not have known that? And it didn't rise. No decision that night on the part of law enforcement rose to the level of having a negative long-term impact is what I'm hearing on the strength of the prosecution's case and on the protection of evidence um, in a in a catastrophic way for the state. All right, so you and I were going to list the most damning pieces of evidence against Alec Murdoch. I mean, obviously, we start with the fact that they're two dead people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the failure to pursue to preserve the crime scene. I mean, if their argument was this, was, if the defense argument was this was a murder suicide, but that's not their. I mean, that, that's not what they're arguing. So it's definitely a double homicide. The question is who did it. So tire marks footprints. So, but what's the best if you and I are the prosecutors, you have a false exculpatory statement about where he was, and then you have the technology. Mm -hmm. And he, 
claims he's not a big fan of technology, although I noticed he used it in his own defense to say he was too tall to have to have shot the weapon because God knows none of us can bend down. So I, uh, he used technology there. But you've got him via cell phone and navigation device. You got him there. And you got him moving quickly. And you got him moving quickly about the time that we think your wife and son were killed. And then we got you getting in your car. And we got you speeding a little bit, except when you pause, which is about where we found your wife's cell phone. So that technology was not impacted at all by the failure, perhaps, to properly maintain a crime scene. What do you make of the use of two different weapons there? If if what the prosecution is alleging to be true, why the use of two weapons? Why the use of a shotgun and a rifle? Well, do you remember when Alex Murdoch wanted someone to shoot him, but it to so it's really a suicide, but I need to claim the insurance proceeds for my one surviving son, same reason. I need people to believe there were two shooters. What better way to provide evidence to a jury that there were two shooters than to use two guns? That's that's uh, from day one. That's why I've thought. I mean, when we hear two guns, we think two shooters. I do. I think of the waste of time and the the more complexity you engage in, the harder it is to explain it away. That's the what more I think. malice. Actually, True. to me, it's the more malice. True. It was not me having a single gun and losing control due to a heat of passion. You mentioned manslaughter. It's definitely not manslaughter in South mm-hmm. Carolina, but but manslaughter is a sudden heat of passion. Kill it. Mm-hmm. One firearm, two people enraged me, you know, shot, shot. This is more malice. I've got to go pick up another weapon. I've got to orient myself to that weapon, aim that weapon. I think he did it because he's trying to construct, as he's done, a crime scene that doesn't reflect what really happened. He did it with the boat case. Remember, their position is somebody else was driving the boat. And it doesn't matter that that kid is going to be saddled with a conviction, perhaps, or a civil judgment for something he didn't do. They've reconciled it's better that this innocent person be convicted because our family's importance surpasses all of that. It's more important that my son get insurance proceeds, even though this is really a suicide. And it's more important that you think that two shooters were involved than for you to know that a single husband and father just use separate weapons. That's right, because everyone else is discardable. That's the whole bottom line when you have that 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 hubris we're talking about, that unfallibility, that absolute um, lack of, of human quality, that your name is more important than the human quality. Your name, preserving that name is more important than any type of truth. Then everyone else becomes discardable. And that's exactly what I was saying, that he, he, he created a, a more complicated procedure for himself, which represents more cunning, more cruelty, more psychopathy, more determination to carry out this atrocious plan. And, you know, it, we were talking earlier about, you know, no parent murders their child that isn't um, sociopathic, psychopathic, or 
evil and insert all of those words. But South Carolina also, you guys had the Susan Smith case. And that's an example, not only so this was a a mother that killed her two children. She blamed it on postpartum depression um, in others. But she led the media on a wild goose chase beforehand. And that is an example where the jury declined to levy capital punishment. Um, And and I terribly, ironically, insert whatever word you want there, she's eligible for parole actually this year. But that Um, was that same state. So that's been, um, you know, it's it's another example of the impact, the persuasion that juries can fall under and also the complexities when dealing with um, famicide. Uh, That is a case that, unfortunately, I am uh, all too familiar with. I was at the United States Attorney's Office when they were investigating it as a potential carjacking because that's what she said it was. Mm -hmm. Driving back from a University of South Carolina football game because the cops wanted to pull some phone records and they needed a prosecutor to go do uh, uh, the wire request or the the subpoena. Uh, But I'll say this, uh, the cops never thought it was a carjacking. The cops never. She blamed it on a on an African American man who carjacked and kidnapped her children. Um, she is eligible for parole. Although I will say this, she admitted that she did it, and she blamed being sexually abused by family members. And she had a really good lawyer and David Brock, and he was able to convince the jury that. Um, of course, you can't tell the jury life doesn't mean life. Mm. For people that are into truth and sentencing and, and like transparency and whatever other little words they use, they never told the jury life doesn't mean life or she may have gotten death. She's parole eligible in 30 years. She ain't going to get it. But um, her husband, uh, up until about a week ago, I saw him every Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the the mark of grief on a parent's face. That, that law. Now, he remarried. He had other children. He's a wonderful guy. He's a great guy. Uh, Saw him every Saturday morning at the grocery store, but he still has the mark, the agonizing marks of grief of having lost two children. She admitted it, and she asked a jury to give her life, and they thought life meant life. Alex Murdoch ain't admitting anything. He says, you got the wrong guy. We are looking forward to having you be the guest for that case which is going to be in um, likely the next 10 or 15 episodes straight. If you're free, we'd love to have you because your insight is unequivocal. And that is such a gripping case for so many different reasons, legally and emotionally. Um, And certainly that community, in addition to that father, most importantly, that father, uh, the grief is permanent. Going back to the Murdoch trial, tell us your final, your, your closing thoughts, your grand summation, anything that we've missed Anything you want to leave us with as we go into the final days of this historical trial for so many reasons? South Carolina is weird. Um, Usually the party with the burden of proof gets last argument no matter what. Usually. In South Carolina, prosecution doesn't get last argument unless the defense puts up a defense. And they have here. So he who goes or she who goes last has the best opportunity. And it's going to be really important that the prosecutors don't go with what they think the best pieces of evidence are. They've been in the room for a month with this jury. If you're not reading what resonated with this juror and what resonated with that, then you're not doing your job. 
So it is your job to convince them that innocent people do not lie about the seminal moment in this chronology. And he did. You're never going to convince people that financial crimes lead people to blow their wives and sons' heads off. I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not going to convince them of that. That's why I don't get caught up in motive, Emily, because, I mean, if you and I could sit here for the rest of our lives and I'd say, okay, come up with a motive that helps you understand killing your wife and son. I mean, you would never, like, come up with something, okay, well, that explains it. I get it now. <laughs> I understand robbing because I need money. I understand somebody made me mad, so I shot him. It's wrong, but I understand it. What could help you understand blowing your wife and son's heads off? So why the prosecution is spending so much time explaining a why that cannot be explained? It's the who. And he lied about where he was. Innocent people don't do that. And then you got the technology that confirms uh Closing argument's important. We'll see, we'll see how good the prosecutors are at moving this jury. Um and they have to be a little better than what I saw in opening and cross. Mm. Trey Gowdy, no one has insight like you. We're so grateful. Thank you so much for everything today. All of your insight, all of your analysis, um, all of your candor. And funny, not funny, but you mentioned in the beginning how, you know, no one no one walks outside thinking this is their last day. No one no one walks outside thinking this is the day they're going to get murdered. But I have to admit, every time I walk outside of my apartment door, I do a sweep and think to myself, is this how it's going to be when the doorman walks in and I make sure my bed is made and I make sure everything is clean? <laughs> it might be the morbid seed in me. It might be the reason I'm hosting this true crime podcast. But believe me, that thought crosses my mind every morning. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, I mean... It, it's, I don't want to say it's a curse, but when you're a lawyer and when you've seen what terrible people can do, it is impossible to wash that off. You can't. I wish I could go through life like my wife. My wife doesn't even lock the door. She can't imagine doing something to someone. Cannot imagine it. And for you and I, when you've seen it your whole life, you do think about it. But, but the, the finality of death. And, and I'll bet you Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch did not wake up thinking today is going to be the day mm-hmm. that my husband slash father blows my head off. And if you can get the jury thinking like that and less of him as this folksy guy talking about a bird dog chasing a chicken, then I think you got a pretty good shot at a conviction. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.